0: Within the year, about a year and a half ago, Joshua Harris is known even in this particular area where he potentially is and even publicly has stated that he no longer believes or he has renounced his his faith, his faith in Jesus Christ. And some of us would look at that and say, wow, you know, like, what does that mean? (laughs) Does it mean that this man was truly saved and he was fully dedicated to Christ because he was a pastor, that he understood fully and understood where he was, that he just renounced his faith. You got to look at that video. You got to listen to his words and understand a couple of things. One is that, like I said last week, we don't fully understand or know truly who's saved. We see fruit, But we don't. God sees the heart. He saves those whom he saves. He sees the heart. We see that in Romans. But in James, we see ourselves as fruit inspectors, seeing, recognizing the works, not because they have to work in order to attain salvation, but they work because of salvation. Uh, Their works are based on their love for God. And most would say that pastors, yes, they're all saved. But in the New Testament, in the first century, there were false teachers. Nor am I advocating that he was a false teacher, because I don't know. But did you notice, if you could see in his comments, that he excommunicated people based on unrepented hearts? Did he ever mention Matthew 18? Did we hear grace? Did we hear anything about I was ministering to people and helping them through their process? Do we ever think about that? We looked at our own lives. How often will we excommunicate ourselves from the church (laughs) if we looked at our lives through seasons in our walk with Christ. When our attitudes and our hearts are so far away from God, when we walk in arrogance and pride, when we think that we're better than everyone, we're more superior than everyone else, that everyone should live according to the how we see things, how often do we walk through a season of unrepentance? When we fall into sin, when we shouldn't be looking at the things that we look at or doing the things that we do or sitting in a world of gossip and slander and betrayal because we have a low self-esteem and we're constantly talking about people and we're calling the person every day and talking about a situation for weeks upon weeks and we think it's okay, should we excommunicate ourselves out of that? (laughs) Should we say, okay, I can't walk with Jesus anymore. I'm living in sin. I'm not saying that I'm dogmatic in my statements here but you notice that he said I excommunicated myself. Did you even look? Did you seek? Did you humble yourself? Did you look to another mentor? Did you say I need help right now? I'm falling into sin. See, these are the questions that are raised when I think about that, because if that's the mantra that I would follow, Joshua Harris's mantra, then I guess I would excommunicate myself. <laughs> because some of that is, is unbelievable when you hear someone say or make that statement so confidently, as though I can choose when to leave and when not to. Really? If God is set us free from sin, he's bought us with a price, and we're servants of the Most High God, El Elyon, and we are his children following him with humility and service, then we have nothing else to but surrender before his throne and saying, God, I need your help. It's in those times when we're struggling, when we're living in sin, or we're falling into sin, that those are the times when a servant says, oh, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I need you. I need you now. No more pride or arrogance or thinking, I can control this or I can be sophisticated or I can, can walk in and dress nice and look nice and think as though I don't need you anymore, Lord. I have Christianity down. My method is pure and clear and God, others need to follow me. No, it's that time when you're saying, God, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you because I'm hurting. See, these are the times when we have to ask ourselves the question. This is why when we're looking at the book of Hebrews, when the author's talking about people are drifting and falling away, they're falling away because in their hearts, they're hardened, they're falling away. We know in chapter two, it says they were drifting away. Then in chapter three, it says their hearts were hardened towards God. Rebellious. Deliberately sinning against God, which we do all the time. We do it in our thoughts. We do it in our attitudes. We sometimes do it in our actions. But there's that hope of forgiveness and confession of sin and the grace of God that every moment and every time God gives us the grace to even speak, to even have a voice, to even have the opportunity to share. But that's what he's going through. And, then, and the author is trying to highlight some of this because he's highlighting back to Kadish Barnea. And as he's thinking about it, it's as if if the author is stating for the believers to continue towards spiritual maturity, as we mentioned last week, it's focused on persevering in our faith, not because of us, not because of the ability we have, because God's power through us when we submit and we humble ourselves and we yield by the power of the Holy Spirit, we yield to the Spirit, and we say, God, how would you have to use me today as your servant? That's the difference by saying, God, here I am. In moving in our progressive sanctification, admitting that we don't have it together, admitting that we can do nothing without him, admitting that we are the vine and he is the I mean, vine, we are the branches. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay? So, you know, it's like you're singing that song and you're saying, God. So the question still is looming, was Joshua Harris a true believer or not. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't, according to the scriptures, according to the theology that I hold to soteriologically, I don't ultimately see how he could just walk away, even though he's hurting. He can go into repentance. He could say, I'm struggling. He can even step down as being a pastor and saying, I need to work on my relationship with God. But to say, I'm walking away. Many of us can walk away if we think We can, but if we're bought with a price and we're secure in our salvation, the Holy Spirit, we can grieve him, we can quench him, but can we really walk away? Was he trained properly? Did he believe more in the law or grace? See, grace requires accountability and humility. Law promotes arrogance and self-promotion. One can say, I'm better than this, or I don't need to repent. I just need to be better. This is what highlights it. So as we look, I just I want you to know, this is, this is next, we're going we're gonna to go here, next uh, level Christian part two. Next level Christian part two. So can Christians be sure of their salvation? Can we be sure of our salvation? That's the million dollar question for many people. But to me, As I've studied and seen and I've confirmed in my heart and believe that the scriptures are clear, we can be because God is the one who's established it. It's all because of him. He's established it. It's been done by him through his son, Jesus. Jesus did it all. I simply just surrendered and confessed my sin and believed that he is the son of God and that he died on the cross for me, for my sin. He died in my place. He established it. And I simply need to humble myself every day and allow the power of the Holy Spirit working through me every day. It's not my work. It's God's work through me. The scriptures are clear. Because if we can say that with a confident heart, there's still the looming question of a warning. There's still a warning. And that's why we want to look real quickly at a couple of passages here in chapter 10, because this is the fourth warning. And as we see the fourth warning, it's saying this, anyone who is set aside of the law of Moses, or excuse me, I'm sorry, for any, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. So we have to look at a couple of things here. One is, you notice the we, it went from you in plural, and, and talking about it from verses 19 through 25, which we'll go back shortly. But the we, he goes from we, and then he's saying you. He comes tr- switching back and forth. So he goes, I'm sorry, 19 through 25, the we, and then now he comes with you. So now he's speaking, again, the author speaking to the Christians. And the word deliberately means two things. It means you continually, habitually go on sinning, and you do it willfully, There's one thing when you have an ongoing sin, and then there's another thing when you're doing it willfully. (laughs) And now what is he alluding to? Well, he begins to allude to in Numbers chapter 15. He's alluding to Numbers chapter 15 because see here, the Arminius would believe that this person is fully devoted to Jesus Christ, and then all of a sudden now, they just start to sin, It's ongoing in their lives. They're going through a season of sin, and it's willful. Well, everything we do, when we sin, we willfully sin. We just do it for a moment, but we willfully sin. What we're saying to God is, "Uh, Lord, can you kind of back up, go in the other room, close your eyes, because I'm about to sin. And I need you to kind of hang out back over there, because I'm about to do something. I don't need you to look over my shoulder. In fact, Holy Spirit, just go in the other room. I don't think you want to look at this. This is bad. I mean, we do, even as we know we're about to sin, we do that. But this is a pattern, a practice, a habitual, ongoing thing that doesn't seem to stop. It could be anything in our lives. It could be pornography. It could be habitual gossip, slandering, demeaning. It could be any kind of sin. It could be gluttony. It could be, but a habitual sin that continues to move in our lives. Some scholars believe that the author is not referring here to apostasy, the willfulness to just walk away from God, but a heaviness of that, I'm not following God at this time. So the Arminius believes that one can just walk away. But then the Calvinists would say no, um, this person, if they continue on habitually sinning and ongoing willfully, are they even saved? Do they have the conviction of the Holy Spirit? And so that's why it's important for us to understand, too, that at this last part of verse 26, it says this. It says, there are no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. What does that mean for the believer, for the non-believer, unintentional sins or intentional sins? And that's what we have to see and understand, because as we move forward here, we have to look at Numbers chapter 15. Numbers chapter 15, and that's what he was alluding to in Numbers chapter 15 when it was written that if one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female, goat a year old for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, he shall be forgiven. And he goes on, he says, and he goes, you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentional. For him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand. This is important because a high hand is talking and referring to someone who's intentionally, presumptuously sinning. Someone who's doing it with a deliberate mind and a deliberate heart. Whether he's a native or sojourner, reviles the Lord. He simply reviles the Lord. And so it's understanding that what we have to realize and look at here is that he, he despises God. And that person shall be cut off from among his people. Now, that's a key verse there, a key phrase, because cut off, what does that mean? Eternal separation from God, eternal damnation? Or does that mean just judgment, physical judgment? So now we have to go back. I'm just going to go back now and just highlight verse 27 and 28. So it says, going back from verse 26, where if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, we believe these are believers just coming to faith in Christ, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The question is, is judgment... Eternal or not? Because it doesn't seem to say eternal judgment here. It just says judgment. Then we go on here. It says, and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. So we just stop there because that's referring to Isaiah 26, 11. This is important. I know this is a lot of information, but watch out now. Put on your thinking caps here. Hold on now. It says, because Isaiah 26, 11 says, let them see your zeal of your people, the fire of fury And be ashamed, let the fire of your adversaries consume them. See, in this context, in Isaiah, it's referring to physical destruction upon the land and upon the people. And God did much of that in judgment in the Old Testament. So when you see that word judgment, you don't see eternal judgment. You see and think of physical judgment. So if someone's walking with the Lord and they willfully, continually, willfully Disobey and are deliberate on going, well, what's the result? The result could be physical judgment, even God allowing someone to die. When they're trying to hide their sin, they're trying to cover it up and hoping that by hiding it, no one will see it, not even God. God will go in the back room into a closet or we can hide him, kind of muzzle God up, kind of blindfold him and saying, okay, you stay here, lock the door. Okay, let's go sin." And, it, and you're sinning, and you're like, God, you're like, you don't see this, right, God? And you just keep on sinning. You go, okay, Lord, let me latch out the closet now. I'm Christian again. You know, I'm walking with the Lord. Now I'm walking with you, Lord. Let's go, let's get back to intimacy. And see, that picture, that imagery is saying, as, as sounding weird as it sounds, that you would muzzle God and hide him in a closet and close him up, that really what it is is what we do when we sin. We And God, if he's going to cut us off, if we keep on sinning, the warning is we're going to get cut off. But see, I believe the cutoff could be judgment, death. Hopefully short of death, it could just be the intimacy that you have with God. Because then what happens is we fall into becoming a carnal Christian, which when a carnal Christian, a fleshly Christian means we're really not doing anything. We just say we're Christians, but we're not living accordingly. And that too could be judgment, meaning God's shutting us off from intimacy with him. And then we become fleshly Christians. That happens. We see it often in the body of Christ because people who are not seeking and chasing and hunting and getting into the presence of God. So that's why when we're looking at verse 28, if you're looking there at verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is capital punishment. This is referring to Deuteronomy seventeen two through 6. And it could be other verses in the Old Testament talking about you have to have two or more witnesses because someone could die. But here's another thing to keep in mind. In Numbers chapter 15, 32 through 36, God said, put to death one who picks up sticks, and I told him not to. Meaning just a simple disobedience. It was harsh. It was law. God would just remove people from disobeying. See, because we have to understand the warning is that when we disobey against God, when we sin against God, there's judgment. Do we understand that in Christ, because there's grace, it's not enabling grace, there's accountability? That when we walk with God, that although our sin can still be considered judged, because when it's judged, that when we confess it, that the blood of Christ covers that every time we confess it? Because God the Father sees the Son, and when he sees the Son, we are in Christ. When we are in Christ, when we confess our sin. What we're saying is that we agree with what God calls sin is sin, and when we confess it, then we come to right relationship with him. That's First John. It's that fellowship. It's that relationship. But when we don't confess our sin and we live in sin and we even deliberately sin and we continue in habitual sin, then John, the apostle in First John, says... Are you even a part of the fold? (laughs) So it's a highlight of understanding in the teaching of the scriptures that we gotta be warned often of remembering that our sin ultimately despises and reviles the Lord, that He can cut us off, even cut us off from relationship with Him. But I don't think it's saying, and I don't agree with the Arminius that said this is the eternal judgment. Because in Matthew, Jesus speaks of an eternal judgment, but the word is missing here. It's not in this passage. But then it says, verse 29, it says, how much worse punishment from the Old Testament and New Testament do you think will be deserved by the one who is trampled under the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has been sanctified, and he has outraged the Spirit of grace? Now, this is important because trampled underfoot means to, detre- to God, treat God with disdain and contempt. Profane means that which is regarded as common, which means that the blood of Jesus Christ is just any, it's common like anyone else's blood. It doesn't really have any value to it. It has no power. It can't save us from sin. It's just another man. So when we continue on sinning and willfully sinning, what we're doing is we're trampling underfoot and profaning the blood of the covenant of Jesus. Now, interesting that in the same chapter, 10, verse 14, it says, "...for by a single offering he has perfected, made complete, mature, for all time those who are being sanctified." So if we are in Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ sanctifies us, not only justifies us, but sanctifies us, then he has made it perfect until glorification. See, we have to understand it's justification. It's not just that. It's sanctification and glorification. When you're looking at an eternal perspective, eschatologically, you've got to see salvation as a package, not just for justification. So often we look in the scriptures and we just say, am I saved? Am I in? Did I walk? through the threshold and say, "Yeah, I'm in." and saying, "Okay, let me go live for myself now." No. We're bought with a price. We're servants. We bear the name Christ. We've got to be willing to what? Die for the God, for the gospel. People right now in Afghanistan are dying for the sake of the gospel. People in third-world countries are dying for the sake of the gospel. God's called us to that salvation to stand up no matter what. That's our calling. That's what he's called us to. And that's why it's important to understand that he's highlighting that. And he goes on, insult means this, disregarding to the Spirit's work in salvation, meaning we even insult the Holy Spirit. Let me just talk quickly about the blood. It says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, this is 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven through 30, Whoever eats of the bread and drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Interesting. Judgment. I don't believe he's saying, Paul's saying that they're removed from their salvation, but they're placing judgment on themselves. They're playing with fire because they're disdaining and treating Jesus with contempt. He says, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Interesting physical death. Corinthians were, to Corintharize, meant to be a fleshly Christian, and Paul was calling them out. They didn't bring honor and glory. In fact, we know in Acts chapter 5, 1 through 11, Ananias and Sapphira, lying against the Holy Spirit, and what happened? Were put to death immediately. Or 1 John five sixteen it says, a sin leading unto death. These are physical death, physical judgment. So the warning is this, to not continue on sinning willfully, or you will fall into the hands of the living God. That's what we see in the last part of this passage. Or you will fall into the hands of the living God. He says, for we know him, he said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here's the warning. We have to be careful because when we're sinning, we need to confess our sin. He is faithful and just. He will forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we understand as a, a believer in Christ, there's got to be an indicator there, and that indicator is conviction. You ever know some people say to me, they say, you know, Bruno, how do you know if someone truly is saved or not when they're living in sin? I say it's because they have to be uncomfortable. They have to be at, you know, they have to be, awkward, and it's got to be painful for them to live in sin. Otherwise, if you notice that they're living in sin and they have, n- they have no issue with it, they're comfortable, there's no issue, they continue on living like as though they were walking with the world in an unbelieving state, then I would question their salvation. Now, I'm not the one ultimately to do that. It's God. But the fruit is where I'm a fruit inspector. I don't have a number. I don't stamp it. Every time I see a fruit, I go 646-8. 646A, I inspected it. No, but what I'm saying is that conviction is a key component. It's an indicator to see if someone is living in sin with conviction and struggling. Because we all struggle. We're all challenged. And we have to understand that that's what it ends up being the case. You know, I, Dr. Albert Moeller said this. He said, there may be even some who sin by repudiating Christianity, but if they ever were genuinely Christian, they will return by repentance at some point, and that is a gospel promise. He even goes on to say this, if persons do continue in their repudiation of Christianity, then we have to remember to the text of 1 John 2.19, where we are told that when they went out from us because they were not of us, which is to say they never were truly Christians. They were pretend believers. That's why I just put that there. 1 John 2:19. It says if we went out from us, then we were not of us, for we he says he they have not been of us. They would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. John didn't mince words. <laughs> It was very clear. This is a hard message. This is a difficult message. Whenever you have a warning, it's very challenging. You have to look at it introspectively and say, okay, what can I do with it as a Christian? So is this a hopeless situation? Are we not going to get out of this? Well, I think as the body of Christ, when a warning comes, that reminds us what we need to be as the body of Christ. And it's important for us to understand that when a warning comes, we have to decide what are we going to do with our faith. If we 're called to be better together, then we need to be together. We need to be together. And in these past 18 months, it has been the most difficult thing because we haven't had any time to really be together. We were together online. Sometimes we came out, although I have to say it's got to be fair that in June 2020, we did open the doors, and we opened the doors, we gave you an opportunity, even with the mask on, to come out, and when you came out, we're still together, even with the st- mask. <laughs> And with a mask, we're still together. We can still fellowship. We set it up. Pastor Dennis and I, we did. We set it up nicely with the staff and leadership team. And we said, you guys can come and we can be a part of this. But we're better together. And as we're better together, it's key. But the sin that's mentioned in verse 26, where we're deliberately sinning, could that be that the sin is actually neglecting the commune together? If so, how do we avoid this? Well, here's a couple of things that we have to go back to in chapter 10, verses 19 and on. We'll go through this very quickly. It says this. I think we're really better together when we approach the presence of God continuously. So when you and I are approaching the the presence of God continuously, let me just leave that there. Anybody wants to fill it out? We're better together when we approach the presence of God continuously. Now, verse 19, it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, there goes that blood of Jesus that sanctifies up, by the new and living way that is opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So the verses prior to what he's saying here in verse 19 highlighted all that about him being the great high priest in the flesh. And uh, in the flesh is that Jesus himself is the Son of God. That Remember that that whole dualistic teaching. Teaching and about the importance of understanding that Jesus is the Son of God came. Was, it was the propitiation for sin. His blood was sprinkled on the mercy, of, mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies, and now we have access to God the Father through the Son. So now he's highlighting all of that, and then he goes into verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God... Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, these are what we call subjunctives, and these horatory subjunctives are highlighted as imperatives. So it's not an option. The author is saying, Let us draw, meaning you and I need to be drawing and approaching the presence of God. He's made access continuously. That's what the actual tense means when we're approaching. Let us draw near is in a present tense, which means continuously. And so he's saying that we need to do that because it's been given to us. God has provided that for us. So, what stops us from entering into the presence of God? Could it be sin? Could it be unintentional sin? Well, we confess it. Intentional sin? We need repentance. When we walk in sin, we walk in darkness. When we approach in the presence of God, God exposes our sin. So why do we avoid him sometimes? Because we know we're walking in sin and we don't want to get in his presence because if we get in his presence, he's going to expose our sin, then we're going to feel really bad. And so we just say, hey, guys, muzzle him up, tie him up, throw him in the closet for a second, and we can keep on walking with this sin. Or do we say, no, Lord, here I am I. I come before your throne approaching continuously, asking you to work in my life. Because when we do that, you're not just doing it for yourself, you're doing it for the body of Christ. Because when you do it and I do it, we're better together. Because then we're confessing our sin and then we're coming clean. And then we walk with a lightness rather than a heaviness of sin in our lives. We don't walk in darkness anymore, we walk in the light. And when we walk in the light, we're confessing our sin. I'm doing it for my brother and my sister and for my brothers who need to be leaders in their home. I need to do it for my wife and my children. That's why I need to do it. Because we're better together, it's about a corporate, it's not about individual and our Western Americans' thoughts. We think it's all about us when it's not about us, it's about the body. So I can be better for you and you can be better for me and then we can be stronger and better together. When we're strong and linked together, we can make a difference for the kingdom of God and the world. So when they see the church, they're going to say, oh my gosh, the church, I want to be a part of that. That's what God's calling. We must go before, as much as it hurts, as much as it's difficult to confess our sin and to be exposed of our sin, to be transparent and vulnerable. I'm better together with you. But sometimes we don't do that because the church is not the place where we find that. Because we have, it's not a safe place sometimes. And we need to find God to be our safe place fears and worries and faults, our low self-esteem, when we compare ourselves to others with envy and jealousy and pride that continues to separate us, when we feel like we've lost our significance for living, we've got to draw near to the Lord. He even says it again in a previous chapter. He says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. We have access that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. I can't say I'm going to excommunicate myself because I'm not living according to the word of God. Who am I to say that? I have grace. I have mercy. I can go to the throne of God, and I know with confidence that he'll receive me because I've been there, and I've done it, and I keep doing it. And when I experience the Lord, then I keep going. I'm better for you, and you're better for me. Because then when I go to a brother or sister and I say, I'm struggling, they're going to say, hey, I've been there. I've done that. Let me help you, brother. Then i say, yes, I need you right now, brother. I need you right now. I'm struggling. Come on, bro. Let's talk about it. I've been there. I know exactly. Come on, let's go get some coffee. That's when we need it. That's why we're better together. Number two, we gotta, we're better together when we believe the promises of God. God in his faithfulness. God in his faithfulness. Hebrews 10, 23, it says this, let us hold fast. Again, let us, another imperative, hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Hallelujah, he's faithful. Hold fast to adhere firmly to the convictions and beliefs. Holding to that fast to retaining faithfully. Confession means an allegiance. With a content of action to the expectation of Christ's return. Our hope is in God's promise that His Son will return and His Son will return and we will be motivated to live accordingly because we're waiting for Him to return in our walk with Christ. It's persevering faith, it's trusting the Lord. It's believing in the promises of God. You know, even Hebrews 6, 11, it says this, and we desire each of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Until the end, until glorification. I mean, this is awesome. I mean, look, the assurance of our hope is until glorification. So we keep moving and persevering. In fact, earnestness means to show and demonstrate it by living in it. And it's going to be tough, and it's going to be hard. Even in Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 39 and 40, at the end of the Hall of Fame chapter, he says, all of these, all of these mentioned in this chapter, he goes, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, the Old Testament saints, Since God has provided something better for us, Jesus, superiority, Jesus, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect, complete, sanctified. Meaning this, it says, in other words, the saints of the Old Testament looking forward to the promised Messiah, salvation, with the faith of those after Christ looking back to the fulfillment of the promise. So we knew it was a promise. It's called Christocentrism. is from the past of the Old Testament. We know today that it was from God's intention from the very beginning. And the Old Testament saints and us as New Testament saints, the church coming together as one. That's through faith in the Messiah, who we know is Jesus. That's what it's all about. Number three, we're better together when we just come together to accomplish the plan of God. It was God's plan for us to be together. It's God's plan for us to approach him in his presence. It's his plan for us to believe him in his faithfulness. And it's his plan for us to come together. Look what it says, this famous passage. And let us consider, here's the number three. Number three, horatory subjunctive, how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stirring one another up. I want to tell you something. Consider means to think about carefully, to notice, but to stir up, it's not a fun word. It means to arouse to activity. (laughs) to stir people up, to provoke them. See, I think the problem today that's so challenging as it was even at the time of this writing is that people who were Jews were afraid to leave Judaism, so they came understanding about Christianity, but they were still holding on to Judaism. I don't know about you, but when I was just first saved in Christ and I lived in Stanford, Connecticut, there were many who were still Catholic who came to the evangelical church, but then went to the Catholic church. They weren't sure which one to go to. They didn't want to disturb their family. They didn't want to go into arguing with their family. So they came to church, they snuck in, came to church with us. And then they said, I have to go to mass on Saturday night, but I'll come to church on Sunday. I'm like, "Now I'm just a new believer. I'm like, why don't you just like, let that go? I did. He goes, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to make my family upset. I'm like, so what? I did. And they were like, well, you know, I want to keep peace in the house when we have our, our meals and our families all together. Well, who cares? Just share your faith. Lead them to Christ. Tell them about Jesus. Don't you know that? He goes, well, I really don't know. I'm not sure. I'm like, I don't get it. Pastor, can you help me? I'm a new believer. He's like, he's not totally convinced. He's not really sure. He's kind of playing both parts. I'm like, but that's double talk. He's like, yeah, let me show you in the scripture, Bruno, what that means. And I'm growing and I'm like, yeah, that's not good. This is what the Christians or these Christians were dealing with. I think today sometimes what happens is we want to be liked by everyone. We don't want to offend anyone. We don't want to stir the pot. The idea of love is not to always give in to someone. We are to be affectionate. The manner by which we do it, we do it affectionately. The word love means affectionately and fondly. But we affectionately win people to the truth. We win people by challenging them to obey. The good works involves challenging God's people to actively reach out to others and care for other people's interests. Let me tell you something. This past week, I was texting just about, I don't know, all you men. Some of you who got a text from me this week, I was challenging you to be there on Saturday, right? Some of you, you may say, amen, amen. I was doing that. I even texted or I emailed someone and said, hey, you want to come? He's like, I'm not sure. I don't think I'll make it. He and his son came. I mean, praise God, because we got to do that. We got to challenge and encourage and build one another up and and help them and stir them up. I might be the one when they see me and they go, oh, here comes Pastor Bruno. Oh, man, he's going to tell me to do something. But we got to try to encourage them. But I do it lovingly, affectionately, because we need to be together. We're better together. We need to be together. That's important, because people are falling away. See, the neglecting to meet together means to abandon, to desert, to forsake. They're falling. And that's what happens when we don't get together, when we don't meet together. We're not better. Not only are we are not better for each other, we're not reaching the world. It's so important. We have a responsibility to do this. I mean, maybe it could come from a heart of discouragement disappointment, feeling defeated. Maybe these last 18 months really have been beating people up. They said that 35% of people who were attending church pre-COVID are no longer attending church. This was just three months after COVID started. I don't even know the stats today. I can guarantee you it's probably about 45, 50%. Because we as the body of Christ need to encourage those who have gone away to get back in the church. It doesn't have to be here. Just get back to Church. Get back to being together as a body of Christ. We've got to challenge one another to do so. I mean, it's one hour, an hour and 15 minutes of our time to bring honor and glory to God. That's what we need to do that. Now, to some of you, you were like, I'm here, Pastor. Why are you getting on me? I'm not trying to get on you. I'm just saying, and here's the thing. Now we need to challenge others to come. Now we need to challenge others to come. And so it's important for us to see that. Because encourage, it means paracoleto. We're not just coming together, we're encouraging them to walk close with the Father and to be discipled, to come alongside of them affectionately, sympathetically, fondly, and tenderly, challenging them to walk with the Lord. What about Iran and Afghanistan? What about other countries in Afghanistan, dealing with the Taliban right now. Do you know? I'm sure you heard they're checking phones now. If they see a Bible app on your phone, they kill you immediately. Well, for you who have a Bible app right now, could you imagine if that just happened right now? We'd be dropping like flies. All of us would die immediately. They were just bringing guns and line us up. That's what people are dealing with in third world countries. It's not an option. It's a command for us to get together. It's a command for us to get together so we can be better together. That's what it comes down to. It's just not an option. Being together is not an option but a calling, and we are accountable to God to hold others accountable to the same calling. If we really want to get away from that warning of deliberately sinning, if we want to get away from the warning of getting judgment, then we need to start approaching the presence of God. We need to believe in God's faithfulness, and we need to ultimately come together. That's what we need to do. That's the recipe that God has established for us through this warning, and we need that more than ever in our lives. So I challenge you today, as I've been challenging you for the last couple of weeks, as the body of Christ, if you've seen this warning, and it's like warning, warning, it's the wife, but if it's warning, what are you gonna do? How are we going to make that difference? Where does it start? It starts with a heart that's willing to say, I surrender, I humble myself, I repent. I want to encourage you right now, just to bow your heads for just a moment before we end. Just for a moment. I want to give you about 20 seconds. If there is one area in your life, just one, maybe it's apathy. Apathy means unbelieving. Apathy says, I don't care. It's deliberately sinning against God. I I mean, if there's apathy or there's a sin in your life that you're dealing with, I want you to just name it right now in your life. I'm going to give you 20 seconds. Father, this is a t- it's a tough message, but we're soldiers in your army. And if the commander is commanding us right now, then let us be the servants and the soldiers we're called to. Take the command and do what you're asking us to do. I pray, Lord, in the name of Jesus, everyone in this room, if they have a sin that they need to confess, or they need to repent. Father, in the name of Jesus, may I pray that they would deal with you, and whatever that is, all of us, and may we understand that we truly are better together. We need to get to the next level of holding each other accountable to be together, and I pray that we do so, Lord. God, be glorified. Challenge us this week. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.